Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sa episode na ito ng Usapang Econ Podcast, babalikan natin ang kasaysayan. I have proclaimed martial law in accordance with the powers vested in the President by the Constitution of the Philippines. Mayan, ngayong linggo ay ginugunita natin ang 47th na pagdeklara ng martial law noong 1972. Tatlong taon na lang, golden anniversary na. Ang bilis ng panahon na no, Mayan? Imagine that was close to 50 years ago. But there's still this huge debate about the martial law period. Some are outright against it, tas yung iba naman, singing praises. Since you've previously taught the economics of martial law at the UP School of Economics, at nagsulat ka na rin ng academic papers and popular articles on this, maganda siguro if you could discuss with me and our listeners some of the myths surrounding this period, in particular yung economic aspects. At napakarami nga nitong mga economic myth na to, no? Halimbawa, marami nagsasabi na yun daw panahon ni Pangulong Marcos nung martial law years, yun daw yung golden age ng ating ekonomiya. Marami ding nagsasabi na sa dami ng mga infrastructure projects na naipatayo during that time ay marami na hinabang sa mga ito at hanggang ngayon ay ginagamit pa rin ito ng maraming tao. At yung iba naman sinasabi na kahit marami yung mga human rights abuses during that time at the end ay benevolent dictator naman daw si Pangulong Marcos. Totoo at may basihan ba ang mga ito? Para malaman natin ang sagot, sa episode na ito ng Usapang Econ Podcast, pag-uusapan natin ang economics ng martial law. Ako si Mayan Vital. At ako si JC Punungbayan. And welcome sa Usapang Econ Podcast. Ang Usapang Econ Podcast ay proyekto ng mga batang ekonomista na naglalayong gawing mas fun, relatable, at understandable ang economics. Nalala ko mayan noong February 2016, at the height of the last presidential and vice presidential race, yung New York Times meron siyang article tungkol sa mga Marcos. Alam naman natin, during that time, Bongbong Marcos was running for vice president, pero natalo siya. Ah, yes. I know that article. It cited yung mga commentaries from different people. And I think there was one that said, I think Marcos was our best president. That was when the Philippines was the leader of Asia. We were respected, sabi nung isang Manila resident. Oo, sabi naman nung isang retired teacher sa Kaloocan, Life was easier under Marcos. We had peace and order and corruption was minimal. We have to tell our children and grandchildren about these times. Myth number one. JC, is it true that our economy reached its golden age no martial law? Ang maganda mayan sa economics ay napakaraming datos na pwede nating gamitin para makita natin yung totoong lagay ng ekonomiya 
noong panahon na yun. What are these indicators, JC? Sige, simulan natin dun sa GDP or Gross Domestic Product. Ito lang naman yung kabuoang kita ng ating bansa. Pag pinagsama-sama mo lahat ng produkto at serbisyo na ginawa sa ekonomiya, yung halaga nun, yun yung GDP. At kapag ka-trace natin yung GDP ng Pilipinas simula noong 1950s hanggang sa kasalukuyan, makikita natin na tuloy-tuloy yung pagtaas nito. Pero sa gitna noon, noong 1980s, mayroong parte na bumaba yung kita ng buong bansa kaysa tumaas. At kapag nag-zoom in ka dun sa kita ng bawat Pilipino, ito yung tinatawag na GDP per person or GDP per capita. Makikita mo kung gaano kalaki yung binaba ng kita ng bawat Pilipino. Noong 1982, ang bawat Pilipino ay merong 48,397 pesos sa isang taon. Pero sa mga sumunod na taon nun, ay bumaba ang kita ng bawat Pilipino at hindi natin na rating yung same na level hanggang noong 2003 or more than two decades later. So you're saying, JC, no? Just to be clear, 48,397 per person annually tapos, um, is that comparable to yung kita na we are enjoying now? Tama ka. Ito yung statistics na tinatanggal na natin yung effects ng inflation. So, pwede mo lang ikumpara yung kita natin ngayon. Which is around 80,000. Well, nearly 90,000 actually. Doon sa nakita natin noong 1980s. Wow. So, that's like a little more than half nung 1980s compared with what we have today. And then, so that's from 1982 to 2003, more or less stagnant yung ating average income. Ito rin yung tinatawag mayan na lost decades of development. Kung saan, imbis na tuloy-tuloy yung pagtaas ng kita natin, ay merong panahon na bumaba ito. At pinapakita nito kung gaano kalaki yung opportunities na nawala sa atin nung panahon na yun. So, JC, I just wanna ask you at this point, expected ba na dapat pataas ng pataas ang kita ng mga tao or let's say ng ekonomiya in general? And if that's the case, is it safe to say that without martial law, we could have grown much higher or we could have grown much faster in terms of income? Yes, tama ka, Mayen. Noong 2016, meron kaming sinulat na article ni Professor Manuel Albis ng UP School of Statistics, at tinignan namin kapag ginaya ba natin yung growth rates ng mga karatig bansa natin simula noong 1960s hanggang sa present time. Ano ba yung itsura ng incomes ng mga Pilipino? At natagpuan namin na noong 2014, maaari sanang 3 to 4 times yung kita natin kaysa sa actual nakita natin. So maraming mga issues pagdating sa mga numero na ito at malaki yung margin of error. Pero pinapakita lang nito kung gaano kalaki yung missed opportunities noong panahon na yun. At paano talaga hinila nung economic environment during that time yung trajectory ng ating ekonomiya. So imagine mo, Mayen, kung meron kang monthly income na 30,000 pesos, 3 to 4 times noon, ibig sabihin, pwede ka sanang kumikita ng between 90,000 to 120,000. Wow! Tapos parang may worst case scenario pa kayo, di ba? Oo, ito yung nakakatawa na kapag kakunin natin yung worst performer sa mga karatig bansa natin tapos i-apply natin yung growth rate na yun sa atin, yung worst case scenario ay actually mas mataas ng 30% pa yung kita natin dun kesa sa actual natin ah. na income ngayon. So, for example, yun ngang 30,000, then you would have an additional 10,000 pesos more. Kumbaga, 40,000 pesos yung sweldo mo. Correct. And then, I have another question. So, it's just interesting na kinuha nyo yung mga growth rates ng ating mga ASEAN neighbors. Ibig sabihin pala, 
they were growing much, much faster than we were. Yes, exactly. If you go back to the 1950s and 1960s, merong panahon na makikita mo sa datos na we were actually one of the richest countries in the ASEAN region. Pero simula noong 1960s and onwards, unti-unti tayong na-overtake ng ating regional neighbors. For example, Malaysia overtook us as early as the mid-1960s. Mm-hmm. And then Thailand in the mid-1980s. And then Indonesia in the late 1980s. Late 1980s pa lang, na-overtake na pala tayo ng Malaysia, Thailand, tsaka ng Indonesia. To the point na noon, tayo yung tinatawag na leader of Asia. Pero ngayon, nasa middle of the pack na tayo. And more interestingly, ang mas mahirap na lang sa atin na bansa ngayon ay Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, tsaka Cambodia. Pero pag na mo ulit yung datos, ang bilis nilang nakakahabol sa atin. To the point na may mga nagsasabi na at the present day, baka mas mayaman na yung average na Vietnamese kesa sa average na Pilipino. Okay, now, JC, I want to know, and this is probably something that our listeners would like to know, saan ang galing yung information na ginagamit mo for your analysis? Ah, yes, magandang tanong yan, Mayen. Kasi gusto ko rin i-emphasize na itong mga claims na ito ay hindi lang basta anecdotal, kundi tumitingin tayo sa maraming data sources For example, government data from the Philippine Statistics Authority or the Banko Central ng Pilipinas. And then meron ka data na makukuha from multilateral organizations like the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, and the International Monetary Fund or IMF. And these are comparable statistics, especially when you're talking about the different countries, right? Yes, exactly. At ang maganda dito ay hindi mo basta maikakaila na meron talagang problema yung ating ekonomiya during that time. Kasi... Maraming data sources na nagtuturo dun sa same conclusion na yun. In conclusion, JC, golden age nga ba ang martial law years? Siguro ganito na lang mayen. Kung babalik tayo dun sa example natin na 30,000 na monthly nakita mo, di ba parang mas bagay sa golden age yung 90,000 hanggang 120,000? Okay, JC, myth number two naman tayo. Sabi nila... So much infrastructure was built. Kaya naman marami nagsasabi na nakabuti naman talaga si Pangulong Marcos sa ekonomiya kasi tignan mo yung mga dami ng infrastructure projects na pinatayo niya kabilang yung Cultural Center of the Philippines, Philippine International Convention Center, yung Heart, Lung, Kidney Centers, saka mga daan at tulay tulad ng San Juanico Bridge. Yes, napaharaming ang infrastructure projects ang naipatayo during that time. Nalala ko si Professor Noel de Jos, ang favorite term niya dito ay yung Heart, Lung, and Kidney Centers mm-hmm. daw. Ito yung mga BOPIS hospitals. <laughs> Kasi mga laman loob. <laughs> Tapos meron kang hindi nabanggit yung pang University of Life na project ni Imelda. Yung current na headquarters ngayon ng DepEd sa Pasig. Ito yung dating location ng University of Life ni Imelda. Tapos kung nalala mo, Mayen, nung 90th birthday ni Imelda, yung mga guests doon ay naghanda sila ng mga cake. At yung mga cake na ito ay korte at hugis ng mga infrastructure projects. For example, CCP, PICC, etc. Wait, ito ba yung recently lang na may food poisoning? Oo, ito nga yun. <laughs> <laughs> Pero hindi dahil sa cake. <laughs> Pero seriously, Mayan, going back to the point na maraming infrastructure projects, this is actually validated by the data. Kasi for example, kung tingnan mo yung government spending around that time, yung growth rate nun ay lagpas-lagpas 10% during the mid-1970s. The same goes for investment rates or yung porsyento ng income ng ating bansa 
na ginagastos sa investment projects. Okay, I have a question. How did the government fund those projects? That is one of the most crucial issues here, Mayen. Kasi marami nga sa mga proyektong iyon ay pinondohan ng napakalaking utang panlabas o external debt ng Rehiming Marcos. Biruin mo, sa loob lamang ng limang taon, mula 1977 hanggang 1982, yung utang panlabas ng Pilipinas nadagdagan ng $16 billion. In fact, pwede mong sabihin na yung paglago ng ating ekonomiya during the martial law years ay debt-driven. Pero, hang on a second. Well, debt, di ba, is not bad per se. Because in case, for example, um, you don't have enough money, tapos you want to build productive projects to improve our economy, di ba acceptable naman talaga for a developing country to, to borrow? Yes, debt is not bad per se. Alam natin yun from our everyday experience. For example, kung meron kang credit card or kung umutang ka para sa kondo or sa kotse, kung wala kang pondo ngayon at kailangan mo talaga ng mga yun, ay uutang ka at walang masama doon. Pero, number one, importante na sustainable yung pangungutang mo. Kung saan yung income na pumapasok para sa'yo ay dapat sapat yun para sa pagbabayad utang mo. At pangalawa, Importante din na yung mga pagagastusan mo nung inutang mo ay productive investments din. Kasi for example, kung umuutang ka para sa isang kotse or kondo or sa edukasyon mo, ay investment naman yun at maganda ang maidudulot nun. Pero yung nangyari during the martial law years ay, number one, hindi naging sustainable yung pangungutang. And second, hindi naging productive yung maraming proyekto ng Rehiming Marcos. Yung UP School of Economics, meron silang sikat na white paper na tinatawag kung saan nakita nila na the bulk of construction in other capital outlays in both the private and public sectors were not very productive and many were outright wasteful. Napakarami daw ng mga overdesigned bridges, highways, public buildings, or large energy projects which were designed to secure a political constituency, to get a commission, or to corner a contract. At marami daw dun sa mga proyektong iyon ay... Meron namang ostensible na social purpose. In a number of instances, though the outward purpose of projects might be endowed with some plausible or social justification, a more urgent reason for pursuing them was the opportunity to use government activity as a vehicle for private gain, whether pecuniary or political. I can even think of one very controversial example ng mga projects na hindi naging productive or hindi nagagamit. Ito yung Bataan Nuclear Power Plant. Was it also part of these projects na naging vehicle for private gain or whether pecuniary or political? Yes, yung Bataan Nuclear Power Plant is a perfect example of such projects. Kasi kung matatandaan mo, it took us several decades to pay for that nuclear power plant. And yet, it produced not a single kilowatt hour of electricity. Yeah, and th- there's actually a lot of controversy surrounding it. Um, it's just, well, a bit bizarre that it was awarded to a well-known Marcos crony. But I guess, I mean, more than it not being able to produce that electricity, meron din kasing mga fears that time because of the Chernobyl uh, accident. And, you know, there are just so many things or so many risks that have left people questioning whether or not this particular project should be used in the first place. On a side note though, I really find it funny how people always praise the politicians whenever they put up infrastructure. Because come on, it's, it's part of their job. And especially if you've had two decades of 
power of being there in government, hindi ba dapat we should expect more from them? Meron akong naaalalang meme, Mayan, kung saan ang analogy daw dito ay para kang nagpasalamat sa isang ATM machine dahil binigyan ka nito ng pera. <laughs> Samantalang yun naman talaga ang purpose ng ATM machine, di ba? <laughs> Pero kidding aside, yung mga politiko, favorite talaga nila yung mga infrastructure projects. And we know that as well from everyday experience. For example, paborito nila yung mga basketball court, yung mga waiting shed. At ito kasi yung mga proyekto kung saan pwede nilang isalpak yung kanilang pangalan. Kumbaga, magpapasalamat yung mga tao sa mga proyektong ito dahil pinatayo ito ni mayor hmm. o ni congressman or congresswoman. So it plays into the so-called patron-client relationships in our politics. At ganito rin yung strategy, I think, ni Pangulong Marcos noon. Kaya naman hanggang ngayon, marami pa rin yung nagpapasalamat sa kanya para sa mga proyektong ito. Okay, sa dami ng inutang for these infra projects na inefficient, ano yung naging impact nito sa finances ng ating ekonomiya? And more importantly, nagdulot ba ito ng lost decades of development na nabanggit mo kanina? Yes, napakalaki ng kinalaman nito dun sa eventual crisis na nangyari sa ating ekonomiya. Kasi makikita mo, for example, na lumaki at this point in our history yung tinatawag na public sector deficit. Ito yung diferensya dun sa kinikita ng gobyerno tsaka sa ginagastos nito. So in other words, ang daming ginagastos ng gobyerno pero hindi nakaka-catch up yung kita ng gobyerno. Kaya lumaki yung public sector deficit. Importante yun kasi habang lumalaki yung public sector deficit, ay dumadagdag ito sa external debt or utang panlabas ng ating bansa. And true enough, during the mid-1970s, yung ekonomiya natin lumalaki at around 5 to 8%. Pero yung debt natin was growing at around 30%. So doon pa lang makikita mo na hindi sustainable yung debt situation natin noon. At umabot na nga sa punto na pag mo yung graph for external debt or utang panlabas, yung ginagastos natin sa interest no sa utang na yun, ay talagang bumulusok siya pataas. And eventually, halos naubos yung ating foreign reserves. O ito yung dollars, for example, na tinatago ng ating gobyerno. So, it seems to me, JC, that although it's true, maraming ang mga infrastructure projects, and well, some of them are unproductive and inefficient, these came with a catastrophic cost. To the extent na up to now, we are still paying for the debt. Mayan, kung pasisimplihin kasi natin, at thanks by the way to usapang econ teammate Jeff Arapok for this example. Para tayong nag ng tao para magluto ng monggo, pero bigla siyang nagpa-buffet na may lechon, crispy pata, at iba pa. Tapos, inutang pala niya sa kapitbahay natin yung pang-buffet at binulsan niya yung sobrang pera, pati yung original na binigay nating pang-monggo. Hi, I'm Siege Tantenko. You may know me as the host of other Puma podcast shows, Go Hard Girls, and WhatsApp at Aling Panlipunan Rebooted. If you're enjoying this episode of Usapang Econ so far, there's more to learn about life under the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. Please come to the opening of a martial law exhibit on September 21 at the UP Vargas Museum. Organized by the Center for Art, New Ventures, and Sustainable Development, or Canvas. This features artwork by Renz Baluyot, as well as a book launch of Silent Witnesses, stories from the survivors of martial law. Puma Podcast will be providing, through audio, stories of these survivors. You can also participate by reading their accounts and creating your own audio of these. On September 21, there will also be a talk by the team behind Fall of Brutal. 
They want the opportunity to design the actual memorial to martial law victims. The exhibit runs until October 15. Okay, JC. Punta naman tayo sa myth number three. Marcos as a benevolent dictator. Remember, this has something to do with him being a strong man, leading our nation, telling us what to do, yung disciplina, and that whatever he does is for the good of the Filipino people. Pero, those are dangerous assumptions, diba? Kasi, it means we are surrendering our agency to a person who has absolute power. Now, what could be the harm or the dangers of doing so. I'm reminded, Mayan, of a famous concept in economics called the principal-agent problem. Kasi sa maraming transactions, merong tinatawag na agent na ina-assume natin mas maalam sa atin or ire-represent yung ating best interest bilang principal. Pero dahil hindi naman nababantayan parate ni principal yung agent, yung agent meron siyang tendency na abusuhin yung relationship to the point na ang ire-represent na niya ay yung sarili niyang interest rather than yung interest nung principal. We could put it simply, halimbawa, if I were a person who's looking for a property, if I get a good broker, then the good broker would really look for properties that will fit my specifications. Na would look for the best quality, the cheapest, would really um, respond to my needs. On the flip side, if I'd find myself a bad broker, then that broker will just go for those properties wherein maha-commission siya ng malaki. I think the same goes for our politics, Mayan. Kung saan pwede nating ituring yung taong bayan bilang yung principal, tapos yung mga politiko natin, tulad ng presidente, bilang yung agent. Ayun na nga eh, JC. Ang danger kasi ay yung kung binibigyan mo ng license for the agent, in, in this case the politicians, to do whatever they want. And that brings us to the massive scale of corruption during the martial law years. Kung saan... Yung extent ng corruption hindi lang sa public sector eh, kundi pati sa private sector. At yun yung kalimitang nalilimutan ng mga tao when we talk about this. Halimbawa dito Mayen, si Pangulong Marcos nagtalaga ng mga friends niya sa key industries and monopolies. Tulad sa coconuts, sa bananas, tsaka sa lumber. At meron ni sa retail, for example. Si Imelda Marcos din, back in 1998, in-interview siya ng Inquirer. Kung saan sinabi niya na, we practically own everything in the Philippines, from electricity, telecommunications, airlines, banking, beer and tobacco, newspaper publishing, television stations, shipping, oil and mining, hotels and beach resorts, down to the coconut milling, small farms, real estate, and insurance. I'm shaking my head as well. <laughs> diba? Ay, parang proud pa sila eh, oh. na... Ganun yung sakop nila sa buong ekonomiya. And I guess this is why we hold the Guinness World Record of the greatest robbery of a government amounting to... 5 to 10 billion dollars. Gosh. At hindi pa nabibreak yun, ha? Oh, wow. <laughs> Mahirap i-break. <laughs> clap, clap, clap. <laughs> and just one more thing. Siguro to give a sense then of uh, how deep the corruption was. Yung mismong central bank natin ay nabangkarote during that time. Imagine a central bank with the sole authority to actually print money and mint coins. Mababangkrap siya dahil sa extent ng corruption ng gobyerno. Oo nga, eh, no? Tapos, uh, fun fact, oh, the, 
the central bank ceased to exist, kaya pinalitan siya ng Banko Central ng Pilipinas. It's a completely different entity. Yes, I think it was a rebranding on their part. part. Parang to remove themselves from that dark past that they had during the martial law years. So there's another side of this benevolent dictator myth na kung saan ginagawa nila ito for the benefit of the people. But can we say that talaga bang nag-improve ang living standards ng mga Pilipino during that time? Here, Mayan, we can also rely on several economic statistics that will be disprove that particular myth. Kasi kung tingnan mo, for example, yung data natin on inflation, which is just how fast prices are rising. Alam mo ba na yung highest inflation rate on record natin ay noong 1984, kung saan pumalo ito ng higit sa 50%. Samantalang last month, I think nasa 1.7 lang tayo. Pero back in the day, fi- mahigit 50% ng inflation rate. Kuha tayo na example, no? Halimbawa, bumibili ka ng bigas na worth 45 pesos per kilo, parang papalo ng 68 pesos per kilo or almost 70 pesos per kilo na ang bigas. And then, yung grab, halimbawa, you're spending 200 pesos on the average, magiging 300 na. And on the flip side of skyrocketing inflation, Mayen, yung kita ng mga manggagawa din during the martial law years, bumaba din. So in other words, habang tumataas yung presyo ng mga bilihin, yung purchasing power na tinatawag ng mga Pilipino during the time ay sabay na bumababa. And then you have the labor situation kung saan yung tinatawag na underemployment rate ay bumulusok din pataas. Itong underemployment ay iba dun sa mas familiar tayo na unemployment rate kung saan underemployed ka kapag ka meron kang trabaho pero kulang yung kinikita mo or you want to work more hours than you are currently working. Talagang bumulusok pataas yung underemployment rate. Ang baba ng kalidad ng mga trabaho during that time to the point na it induced so many Filipinos to move out of the country and hence you have the so-called OFW phenomenon. So in essence, you can trace the OFW phenomenon to the economic troubles during the martial law years. And then, you can also see the economic hardships in the poverty statistics. Now importantly, the Marcos government actually stop publishing poverty statistics for more than a decade. So, economists had to backtrack and actually estimate what poverty looked like during that time. And nakita nila na tumaas din talaga yung poverty during the martial law years, especially in the early 1980s. And to think, JC, no, we haven't even touched on the appalling human rights record. So, with all these things, how benevolent was the dictatorship of Marcos? I think the main takeaway mine is that whatever economic growth we saw during that time, we should never forget that that benefited only a handful or a very small proportion of our population. Ito yung mga cronies or kusining malapit kay Pangulong Marcos. By contrast, the vast majority of Filipinos failed to reap the benefits of such growth. And actually, for many of us, Our living standards deteriorated a lot. So, in conclusion, JC, we have debunked the following myths. Myth number one martial law era was the golden age. But actually, it led to the country's worst post war recession and the lost decades of development. Myth number two. So much good infra projects were built. But actually, that buried us in a lot of debt that we're still paying up to this point. And myth number three, 
Marcos was a benevolent dictator. To some, perhaps, but not the vast majority of Filipinos. Okay, and what about those people who say that past is past? Move on na tayo. What do we gain from revisiting all these facts and figures? I think, Mayen, the key takeaway in all we've discussed is that we need to understand the mistakes of the past so that we may never repeat them. Sabi nga, di ba? Hashtag never forget. At hashtag never again. Ako si JC Punong Bayan. At ako pumuli si Mayen Vital. Ang podcast na ito ay isinulat namin ni Mayen. Tumulong sa pagbuo ng episode, ang producer ng Puma Podcast na si Carl Joe Javier at ang nag-edit ay si Nina Toralba. Sundan nyo kami sa aming blog, usapangekon.com. I-like at i-follow nyo rin kami sa Facebook at Usapang Ekon Blog at sa Twitter at Usapang Ekon. Hanggang sa muli. Thanks for listening.